0: And welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only.
1: I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the Provocateur. Cam, what are we looking at this week? We are going to take a look at the 2015 version of The Man from UNCLE, Directed by Guy Ritchie, an adaptation of the 1960s TV series starring Robert Vaughn. Now,
0: our, our tried and trusted method so far has been to read the synopsis from Letterbox.com. So, away we go. The man from UNCLE. Saving the world never goes out of style. At the height of the Cold War, a mysterious criminal organization plans to use nuclear weapons and technology to upset the fragile balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union. CIA agent Napoleon Solo and KGB agent Ilya Kuyakin are forced to put aside their hostilities and work together to stop the evildoers in their tracks. The duo's only lead is the daughter of a missing German scientist, whom they must find soon to prevent a global catastrophe. That sums it up pretty well I think. Yeah, that's uh that's a bit of a, a bit of a mouthful but
1: um doesn't give you too much. It sort of gives you the first 10 minutes of the film really. Yeah, it's not the um <laughs> War and Peace that was uh the Bourne Identity. No,
0: it, it, it actually flowed quite well. It didn't have a pause in the middle where you just thought it had ended.
1: <laughs> thought or hoped. <laughs> uh, you that bored
0: of my voice already. <laughs>
1: It's only episode four.
0: <laughs> I'm done with you. We're, we're finished. So, Cam, before we get
1: into the background of the film, off the bat, what are your initial thoughts about it? I will say, like, I'm not the world's biggest Guy Ritchie fan. So I've enjoyed, I think, like most of the world, Lockstock and Snatch, his two big early crime dramas, uh, comedies. Um, I really enjoyed those. They have that sort of Tarantino style. But, like, since then, I've always felt like Guy Ritchie... It's kind of wandered down some curious paths. Um, I'm not a fan like of his recent films like King Arthur or um, Aladdin or even really the Sherlock Holmes films but this one I remember really thinking it was um, a little bit of cut above of that. Um, I really enjoyed the style here. It felt like a natural place for him to take that kind of oddball style he carries from movie to movie. And I think it's a charming, fun movie. Is it maybe a little inconsequential? Possibly, but it is fun. So I'll say that right now.
0: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I I hadn't seen this film before I watched it for the podcast. And so I was going completely fresh, which I quite like. And I just enjoyed it as a piece. I think it was quite a funny film. I don't know much about Guy Reggie apart from Snatch and Lockstock, etc., because They're basically British staple films. Everyone's here seen those films and we'll walk around quoting Snatch. but um, no, I I, I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't know much about the original TV show either because I think it was just before my time. So I had no idea and I, I found it a really enjoyable movie. That's good. We've got that. Now what we usually do is take a look at the background of the
1: film. So Cam, what do you know about it? Okay. So the man from uncle uh, came out in the summer of 2015 it had a budget of 75 million, which is actually fairly low for this type of movie, especially a movie opening in the summer. Um, domestic, it made 45 million. International, 62 for a worldwide total of 107 million. So no one got fired, but this was not a hit.
0: That's, uh, I don't know whether that's a thumbs up or a thumbs down, really. It's, again, not a big money maker, but it didn't sound like it lost any money. But it just feels like these days, studios want these Avengers Endgame-type box office hits every time.
1: Yeah, um, generally when they're looking at worldwide numbers, usually they say 400 is the line you have to cross to get a sequel, but 300-something's okay. Uh, And this did 107, so meh. (laughs) Tell that to Star Trek Beyond. Still waiting for the fourth one. No kidding. And I mean, Guy Ritchie, previous to this, had done the two Sherlock Holmes movies, which were huge international grocers, especially. So I think this was a little bit of a disappointment for him. Um, As for the year, uh, the top three movies worldwide, number one was Star Wars, The Force Awakens, which made like $2.1 billion. So believe me, it was well outside of the the realm of The Man from U.N.C.L.E.
0: Which I think is a bit of a shame, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, i I certainly remember seeing star wars that year but i did not go and see the man from uncle so i I didn't help this
1: either i did i helped a lot but (laughs) then 10 times (laughs) they finally had to take it out because i'd worn out all the prints you were the man from uncle that's right the only one frankly (laughs) (laughs) um and number two was jurassic world uh and number three was furious seven so once again We have entered an era of nothing but uh, sequels, remakes, and well-known IP being on the top three. Ultimately, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was number 66 for the year, right between Vacation, the reboot of National Lampoon's Vacation, and the Shaun the Sheep movie, which I think we're covering that next week, right, Scott? Next four weeks in a row, actually, we're breaking it down to a four-part series. (laughs) Shaun the Sheep by the numbers. (laughs) (laughs) bar the numbers (laughs) and so um there was actually a lot of spy movies this year remember when we talked about the born identity i said 2002 would be the the big spy year we'd be revisiting over and over well it looks Mm -hmm. like looks like 2015 will also be a well-visited year so here's a list of the movies that beat the man from uncle at number six you had specter at number eight you had mission impossible rogue nation Number 18, you had Kingsman, the first one. Number 33, you had the Melissa McCarthy film Spy. And at number 44, you had the Spielberg film Bridge of Spies. All movies that we will cover in the future. And at number 85, we had a movie that I think we have to debate whether this belongs in this series. But um, at number 85, we had Hitman, Agent 47.
0: As in from the video game Hitman franchise.
1: Yeah, there's two of them. This was the second one. I I didn't
0: even know that they did films. They
1: did, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) sure, I didn't go see it. Yeah, I don't think many people saw the Hitman films, really. Um, A couple other notables that I'll just mention. Uh, This was the big year for Alicia Vikander, the co-star of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. This was her big coming out year, and she was everywhere in 2015. So she had this movie at number 66. At number 97, she had the independent drama The Danish Girl, for which she won the Oscar that year for... Um, Best Supporting Actress. And at number 140, she had Ex Machina, which was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I think the best performance she gave. I think I would have given her the Oscar for that one. That was where I knew her from.
0: Uh, Of the three you've listed, I think that's the only one I've actually seen.
1: Right. And also Elizabeth Debicki, who's uh, the villainess in this film. Um, Mm -hmm. She appeared in the movie Everest, um, which was like a wilderness drama at number 38. Um, I did see it. It was all right. So, Cam, how did this film
0: end up on the screen? Because I heard there was, a, it was quite a long gestation period for it.
1: Yeah, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was in development since the 90s. Um, I'm guessing in the wake of movies like um, The Flintstones, The Fugitive, The Brady Bunch movie, there was a real appetite to translate as many TV properties as possible to big screen movies. This was on the list at uh, Warner Brothers but it just never really came together. They've said that they figure they had 12 to 14 scripts written for this adaptation, and it kind of just went nowhere and sat dormant until about 2010, when Steven Soderbergh, the Oscar-winning director of Traffic, he also did Aaron Brockovich, as well as Contagion. He works a lot, he makes a lot of really cool movies. He did the movie Haywire, which we'll probably cover on this podcast. Um, he signed on to do it, And at that point, George Clooney was attached to Star. And Soderbergh and Clooney had worked together on the Ocean's Eleven films. And so it felt like a natural uh, transition for the two of them to go and recreate a spy film, which could be really cool because Ocean's Eleven really did the cool stuff very, very well. And um, it sounds like Soderbergh, you know, just mostly left over budgeting. The studio wanted to pay less than sixty million. You know, that basically sixty was the the top of the bar, but they wanted less than sixty million. And Soderberg was looking at it as a three part series that would hop the globe each movie. And when you hop the globe, that gets expensive. Just look at the Mission Impossible films. Yeah, exactly. They're not cheap. They're not sixty million productions. No. And um, so George Clooney was the original choice to star, but he ended up dropping out of consideration due to injuries. Um, He just had some sort of um, sports injury that he just felt would prevent him from doing this movie properly. And basically at this point, they looked at every male actor who could possibly star in this movie. Like They looked at Channing Tatum, Bradley Cooper, Ryan Gosling, Leo DiCaprio, Robert Pattinson, Matt Damon. Basically go down the list They considered them Johnny Depp, uh, John Hamm, Russell Crowe. It's pretty much everyone at least probably took a meeting or was on a list somewhere as a potential lead for this movie. But ultimately, they ended up casting Henry Cavill after Tom Cruise fell out. Tom Cruise had signed on basically to do it, but dropped out because Rogue Nation's scheduling got in the way. Good choice. Yeah, exactly. So Army Hammer was cast opposite Tom Cruise, but when Tom Cruise dropped out, that's when Henry Cavill jumped on. Another casting choice that almost was the Elizabeth Debicki role. They were eyeing also Rose Byrne and Charlize Theron. Um, I have to believe Charlize Theron just wasn't interested because I think they probably would have cast her if she'd been available.
0: I would say it seems a bit below her, but then she's also taken a turn in the Fast and Furious films now. So
1: that is true. Yeah. It does seem um, like the
0: same character a little bit,
1: but this was a 2015 movie. So 2015, she puts out Mad Max Fury Road and, uh, I feel like that was probably the effort that may have taken up that scheduled time. I'm not sure because that had such a long post-production, but I would never want to do anything to risk my precious Mad Max Fury Road. No, I think that was a good choice in her part 2. Right. So ultimately what happened was Guy Ritchie jumps on this movie after Soderbergh exits. And he brings on his writer, Lionel Wigram, who produced the Sherlock Holmes movies as well as the Harry Potter franchise, beginning, I think, with the third one. And Richie and Wigram co-wrote the script for this film. Richie said the script was in flux for through most of the production. He likes to work that way. We talked last time about Doug Lyman, how he kind of likes to find his movie. And Guy Ritchie sounds pretty much the same kind of idea. He really does like to kind of find the movie. Um, Henry Cavill has said they improvised a lot of the lines in the movie. So I think this was a fairly loose production. And probably not that maybe the clamped down approach that, uh, you know, a a different filmmaker would have taken.
0: I can see the actors having a lot of fun with this sort of loosey-goosey approach. But I can imagine a lot of the crew just screaming as they just mess around with framing of scenes and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can tell that this movie was like a long-term production because when you look at the story credits, there's four story credits, two of them to Richie and Wigram, but there's also credits to someone named uh, Jeff Kleeman, who was a TV producer, and David C. Wilson, who wrote some action movies back in like the 90s and very early 2000s and then has not worked since. So I would say that they were taking some story material from those earlier drafts along the way. Mm. and then working them into this movie okay folks so before we get into the sort of meat of the film we did also set an additional challenge for
0: ourselves and yourselves of watching the original first episode of the man from uncle from the 1964 tv show uh, i believe the vulcan affair was the name that is correct it was uh, fascinating oh oh now, we, we did take up the challenge, and we will also sort of review that later on, But and also you sort of compare and contrast on our way through, but we just wanted to make sure that you all, if you hadn't heard last week's episode, don't be surprised if we're going to talk about the pilot as well. Right. All right, Cam, so let's get into it. You said you enjoyed the film as a little bit. You didn't really give me too much from your initial thoughts, so just let's, let's, let's tuck into it a bit more.
1: What did you think? Yeah, so this movie um, is a really good example of style over substance. Um, when we talked about *Born*, when we talked about Goldeneye, when you looked at my notes, I had a lot of notes with asterisks next to them because it was like, ooh, this is a key thematic idea or something the filmmaker's trying to get across in this moment that I think is going to be really interesting to talk about on the podcast. Let's just say there's not a lot of asterisks in my notes on this one. <laughs> Like, it really does feel like a lark. Like, it's just, you know, Guy Ritchie was just like, I just want to have fun. And I do think that fun translates fairly well. Um, I think the movie maybe gets a little bogged down in the, in the latter half, which we'll talk about later. But ultimately, like, I love the style of this movie. And I liked his basically, I guess, recreation of what seems like 1960s cologne ads. <laughs> Like, it feels like that's half the movie to me is just these very picturesque scenes of actors looking cool in front of like beautiful backdrops and just looking like way better than I will ever be in my life. Yeah, the film
0: certainly has a bit of a swag to it. I believe is the term we would use there, but um, it it is cool at all times throughout the film. Certainly nowhere I could ever reach. I mean, Henry Cavill is is a, I think a cut
1: above most male specimens, anyway. Yeah, he really makes us all just look very meek. <laughs> it's it's yeah. very frustrating, but I did enjoy that. Like, there's a real like distance that uh, the two male leads have. Like, they seem a little bit removed from the action, almost. Especially like Henry Cavill, just seems to be commenting on everything that's going on, playing it so cool that uh, it's just, I mean, it's a lot of fun to just watch him quip and basically just look at everything with a very uh, detached eye. And so that sort of tone carries throughout the whole movie. And I do think that maybe is damaging to when the movie wants to be exciting, because when you have a character constantly basically being detached and above it all, it kind of gets in the way of raising actual tension in action sequences but I do think it's really fun, more so just to hang out with the characters.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just look at the scene where um, Army Hammer's character, Ilya, is trying to escape on the boat. And um, Henry Cavill's character, Solo, is just sat in the van eating a sandwich. Whilst it sort of happens in the background. That is funny for a second, but they are hanging there for a while. You don't care as much.
1: I don't know. That may be my favorite sequence
0: of the entire movie. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. It was cool. It was, it, was, it was
1: funny. Yeah, I laughed. But as you say, taking away some of the gravitas of the moment, maybe. Oh, for sure. I mean, that whole sequence where, yeah, like Army Hammer's trying to escape in a boat. Henry Cavill's been tossed off the boat and is now sitting in a truck, soaking wet, just eating a sandwich while Army Hammer's like going around in circles in a boat being shot at. Like, it's very funny. And I mean, the score for this movie and the music choices just give it a lot of energy. And it's just played out in an extended scene of just Henry Cavill just observing. And there's a lot of that in this movie, a lot of montages. And I was wondering if there was uh, real attempts there to, I mean, this is a $75 million movie, which isn't a ton. And I was wondering how much of that was done as a way to work around the fact they couldn't stage extensive, like, big action sequences. Because there's also, like, a montage invasion of a bad guy's lair that's done all through, like, split screens and montage cutting. And um, again, you get around having to stage an extended combat sequence by just showing short clips. Yeah, that could well have been a good use of, of editing there. I, I found that
0: bit a bit odd, but I think that part of the film just felt a bit weird by that, by that point anyway. Um, I, I felt like I was laughing less. But one thing I, I found quite interesting was how I almost felt that the two of them together made one whole spy.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, there's a determination, like a real determination, to the Army Hammer character that doesn't really exist as much in the Henry Cavill one, who's a little more. I mean, we get his background in this and that he was like an, you know, he'd been a soldier in World War II and then became an art thief and drew the attention of the CIA, who Basically threatened him with a prison sentence, and now he has to work for them. So he already has a little bit of that rebel attitude. He's a great agent, but he has a little bit of that rebel versus Army Hammer, who's hundred percent committed to the cause.
0: Yeah, he's like Army Hammer is little talk, more action. Whereas Henry Cavill is basically just quipping his whole way through while drinking. You basically might have to give him a vodka martini,
1: right? Like Henry Cavill has a little more of a James Bond sort of attitude in some ways, like mm-hmm. more the Sean Connery James Bond. And believe me, they're trying to evoke that in several points throughout this movie. There's one early on where he's, you know, in the perfect suit, firing a silenced pistol at Army Hammer, and you're like, that is very Bond. It's it's almost like a um, an audition for Henry Cavill to play Bond in the future. But um, you can see more of that style that that Sean Connery had. Where Sean Connery was in action scenes in these movies, and Henry Cavill is here too. But you get the sense that. The action scenes are almost a little bit below them. Yeah, the kind of too cool for school attitude that comes mm. off the screen sometimes. Totally, yeah. I mean, that's very loud throughout this movie. And I it I like that Guy Ritchie, I guess, really locked down on that and brought that entire attitude to the movie. But yeah, that the Henry Cavill character really represents that. And why that's why he is a good foil for the Army Hammer, who's I don't know, would you say Army Hammer's cool in this movie? There's a couple of bits where he becomes cool because for most of the film, Henry
0: Cavill's character is just sort of pointing out his flaws. But then like, say when they're being followed um, by the fountain, he's already acknowledged that they're there and he knows everything. He's just not going around shouting about it.
1: Mm -hmm. He he is
0: quite cool under pressure, which I think, again, that's why I sort of linked to
1: Jason Bourne. He's not as like demonstrative of his like cool factor. Like Henry Cavill, when that guy walks into a room in this movie, he knows he's the coolest guy in the room, or at least thinks he is, versus Army Hammer, who I think doesn't even concern himself with such trivialities.
0: No, well that, and and that kind of goes to the, the scene where the 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 races, I believe it was. I'm not quite sure where it was set, but um, he's just going around, you know, flip flopping around the floor and stealing people's jewelry as if it's all some one big jolly. But you know, there's you know nuclear weapons at, at stake here. There is there are big stakes to be had.
1: Yeah, I mean, that scene with Henry Cavill just wandering around that, I don't know what it is. It's like a tent outside of a car race. Um, But yeah, he just is completely removed from everything that's going on. And it's a fun approach to playing a spy, because so often when we see spy movies, they seem much more actively engaged, versus Henry Cavill, who's almost sleepwalking through the movie. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean the character is almost sleepwalking through these assignments.
0: Apart from maybe the the torture scene and, maybe the driving scene at the end, you don't really ever see
1: him break a sweat. No, and I think it works for the character because that's why he is a good foil because Army Hammer, as we see throughout the movie, this Russian agent is borderline homicidal. Like he's constantly having his hand start doing tremors because he's about to snap. And so the idea of him being with a guy who cannot snap, like I don't think anything would make Henry Cavill snap. Yeah, the the tick you mentioned, when I I first saw that, I got
0: a, a Kill Bill flash to the sort of that music cue that Tarantino plays, the dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, I found that a bit of a, a strange addition because that certainly wasn't any way to be seen in the pilot, obviously, uh, of the TV show from
1: the 60s. Then again, yeah. more
0: was his character, particularly.
1: I mean, we chose to watch the pilot of the Man From Uncle TV show, which Ilya is a very, very, very small part of. Um, I think you could blink and you miss it, basically. So I feel like... I can't comment on that character on the show because we didn't get a good sense of who that character is in the many, many, many episodes in which he co-starred.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what I got from watching that initial pilot episode was they'd already established Uncle, whereas this film is about bringing Uncle together.
1: Oh, yeah, this is the origin story of Uncle for sure.
0: Yeah, so you, you can understand why it doesn't spend the whole episode trying to explain things to you, I suppose. Whereas this film does do a good job of, of giving you a background and where both of them come from, although I'd say more um, Henry Cavill's character than Army Hammer's. You don't, really see, you don't really have a montage about his training.
1: No, you just get that bit where they're sitting at the restaurant, they found out they have to be partners on this case. They don't want to be partners. They've just been in like a fist fight in a bathroom uh, as soon as they encountered each other. But um, Henry Cavill, basically, just to get under Army Hammer's skin starts basically listing off details of his life and kind of taking jabs at him about his mother's questionable reputation in society, the way his father was sent off as an embezzler uh, to the Gulag. So you get, I guess, through that conversation, some background on Ilya, but he's definitely not the major um, character with the big flashbacks and all that. That's definitely the Henry Cavill character. But then again, the film is called The Man from Uncle, not The Men. That's very true.
0: I can understand why they would probably lean on one person more than the other but they are I would say co co-headliners co-builders as leads I I would say I mean he's second I, on the call sheet army hammer I would, I would have thought Yeah but uh, yeah it's definitely a two-hander here Did this film remind you of any other films because there's one in my head that stuck out pretty early on and I couldn't shake it for the rest of the film
1: Um well, I mean, 1960s Bond movies, it reminded me a lot of. Um, also, some of the, um, the way they use split screens and stuff reminded me a lot of the 1960s Thomas Crown Affair, starring Steve McQueen. Um, I think Norman Jewison directed it, and it has a lot of the style that felt like was taken from that movie and brought over here. Did that line up with what you were thinking? Well, your answers are far more educated than mine were, unfortunately. Uh,
0: It reminded me distinctly of the Tom Hardy, Chris Pine film, This Means War.
1: (laughs) I was for a second going to laugh if you said something like, Toy Story, because Woody and Buzz are friends. (laughs) (laughs) There's a snake in my boots. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I never saw This Means War, but the idea of, yeah, two spies who are turned against each other, and they're both cast with, like, you know, the best looking leading men around. I could definitely see some comparison points for sure. Well, it's all the sort of trying to outspy each other a little bit, especially
0: in that scene where they're breaking into the vault and just before that, where they're just kind of trying to one-up each other. Basically, this means war is, is that the entire film, but the stakes are for a girl, not for the, you know, the safety of the planet. So you know, different strokes,
1: but yeah, the, the dynamic between the two just reminded me entirely of that film. To be fair, my education level for This Means War is confined solely to seeing a trailer a couple times. I, I think you've probably seen the whole film. Yeah, well, I guess that's a stay tuned for the future, folks. I think you know, I've already got my uh, answer about the Noctis from
0: that film, too. Cool. <laughs> okay. Maybe the rewatch will turn you all around. You never know. <laughs> Speaking of the um, cafe scene you mentioned when they were talking to each other, I was convinced that was shot in Battersea Park. And I used to live in, in Battersea. And so even after the film, I went and looked it up. And it turns out it was a completely different park in London. I was quite disappointed because I was so convinced. I went and told my better half, come look at this. And even she was like,
1: I don't think that's right.
0: So, but you
1: are, you are at this very moment, though, recording at that actual location.
0: Yes, Brockwell Park in South London. I'm, I'm there now. Uh, socially distanced with my microphone. Everyone's just staring at me like, who is this guy?
1: And Henry Cavill's holding the recorder for you. Sorry, a little bit closer there, mate. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why he's wearing the Superman suit, but you know, whatever. <laughs> he owed me a favor, it was a personal request. Let's not talk yeah. any more about it, please. That's right. I think it's an interesting um, point though to bring up Henry Cavill there because Henry Cavill, when he appears in this movie, He's done Immortals, that sword and sorcery uh, movie that was really lousy. And he's done The Man of Steel. But this is kind of more of his bid for, to be a leading man. How did you think he fared as a leading man in something that, you know, a property that doesn't have a built-in audience the way that Superman does?
0: I think he pulls it off. He can carry a film. I I have no doubt in his skills. I mean, I, I've been on a bit of a Henry Cavill binge accidentally recently. I watched, uh, I think it was... Yeah, Batman versus Superman recently and Mission Impossible Fallout recently. So I feel like I've had my fill of Henry Cavill, which is by no means a bad thing. But yeah, to answer your original question, he, he totally carries this from my book.
1: Yeah, like I think it's interesting that since this movie, and I guess because it was a bit of a box office underperformer, um, it doesn't feel like he's gotten a lot of the starring roles like, to continue. Because Mission Impossible Fallout, which I love, um, a spoiler for the knock list, uh potentially, but um, you know he is a supporting role in that movie, um, a very prominent supporting role, but he's not the lead. And then also, um, you know, you look at Batman v Superman, which you named, which, or even Justice League, uh, which are horrendous movies. But Superman is definitely backgrounded in favor of Batman and Ben Affleck's Batman and Wonder Woman played by Gal Gadot.
0: Yeah, now you mention it, he doesn't really seem to have had much as the. As the star, he's, he's co-starring with other people, certainly, especially with Mission Impossible, I would have said. Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah, okay, that's a shame, because I I think he was fine. What, did you think he was okay too? No, I really enjoyed him in this movie, and I would have maybe had some doubts about him as a leading man after Immortals, just because that was such a generic performance, and the movie did him no favors, to be fair. Um, but it is interesting that you have these two stars, because Army Hammer, at this point in time, was also in the position of being pushed as a major leading man, but he put out The Loner Ranger, where he'd start opposite Johnny Depp. And that movie was like a debacle financially. So I think between that and then this, Army Hammer lost a couple steps. He went in a different direction, though, where he started doing more art house stuff. You know, he popped up in Nocturnal Animals, for example, where he's quite good. Uh, he did Call Me By Your Name, the independent drama, which was fantastic and I think gave him a little more of a boost just in the acting world. Um, So he'll probably show up in more, you know, maybe more layered performances going forward and more dramatic productions. But in terms of the two of them, it seems like this was the point in time where it was kind of a make or break for them as leading men in big budget sort of blockbuster type stuff.
0: They may not have hung on as lead men, but they're certainly still getting cast in big films. So I don't think they've done themselves any disservice. They just might not have boosted their film. But then again, this film didn't
1: exactly do well anyway. So who saw it? Well, exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, they did everything they could. None of the fault of this movie underperforming has anything to do with them. Um, you know, I just think it was the audience really didn't know what the man from uncle even meant. And so it's, just, it's a bit of a confusing title. I think I, I had no idea. I saw the trailer for it. And I, I didn't go to watch it. Well, it's especially confusing in that this movie's an origin story where the, he isn't the man from uncle. He's the man from the CIA. Yeah, it's true. And then it's not until the end where it becomes the group from Uncle, because there's three of them by the end with Alicia Vikander as well. So it's not like it's the man from Uncle at the end. It's like, no, it's a trio now. The people from Uncle? Or you could just say the trio from Uncle, I guess. Yeah.
0: Now, we've, we've spent about, I don't know, half an hour talking about the two male leads. I'd, I'd like to sort of pivot on to the, the female co-stars. Mm-hmm. Starting with Alicia Vikander, what did you think?
1: I mean, she kind of has a little bit of a thankless role, which we've seen a million times, which is the, you know, in this case, she's the the contact they want to use because her father is an inventor who had worked for the Nazis at a certain point and had invented a method of making a bomb that would simplify the use of uranium in the bomb so you could make nuclear bombs much easier. He's disappeared, so they need her to get to him. And I mean... It's one of those roles we've seen a thousand times, but I think Alicia Vikander does some really fun stuff with this character because the character is not just going along for the ride. She's on a whole other ride of her own. And I love, you know, she has a flirtation with Army Hammer. She has to go undercover as his fiance. And she has moments with him that are so bizarre where they're doing awkward dancing. And I mean, Army Hammer, awkward dancing is always a good thing if you've seen Call Me By Your Name. But like, she's like tackling him and wrestling him. And she's just a, like a real firecracker through the movie. She's really fun.
0: The original part of the film is obviously when she's being rescued by Henry Cavill's character. Mm-hmm. And you could easily see it falling into the trope of, oh, I'm being saved. Oh, help me. And just sort of being carried through the film. But from that, that get-go, she's quipping against Henry Cavill. And she's putting up a fight the whole way through. And I think she, the character benefits from i say better female writing that we have these days than we certainly did in the 60s era of
1: of spy films and spy tv. Not only that but you could definitely say that Guy Ritchie didn't have the greatest history of female writing either with his characters and um, this really does feel like kind of a pivot point for him Um, because I wouldn't say the the uh, ones in um, Sherlock Holmes were particularly well developed. They were larger roles than maybe in something like Snatch or Lockstock but Um, I feel like this was the first time where he really was writing them fun stuff to do. And you'd see that carried even like Aladdin. Naomi Scott has a lot more to do in that movie than Jasmine typically did. So I think this movie was a good example of Guy Ritchie saying, wait a second, why don't I just make the female characters just as cool as the male characters? That should make a lot of sense to a lot of people. But I think this was a little bit of a breakthrough for him. And I think it's actually helped his movies going forward, at least in that regard and made the characters more lively. I
0: could definitely attest to Aladdin and this film. And I, if that, I I haven't seen the Sherlock Holmes films. I know, I know. Sorry, everyone, but uh, I'm I'm British and I haven't seen a Sherlock Holmes film. It just seems to seem like a backwards stance, but, uh, Yeah, I'm I'm glad she has the sort of agency in this film. And she she has a bit of a pivot later on where she's actually doing stuff for herself. She becomes an agent for the film itself and and pushes the
1: story forward. So she is in her own way a lead too. I was going to say, she has agency, but she's working for an agency. She certainly does. And at the same time,
0: she is fun to watch. Yep. She's just funny and... I think uh, this film leans a lot in the humour category and she's able to carry the scenes herself, really. I mean, you just think about the scene where, the, the, you know, uh, Henry Cavill and Army Hammer are arguing with each other about being followed and she's just there, you know, getting water out of the fountain, just casually, uh, even though she's supposed to be a rich person, you know, with an architect husband or fiancé, I should say. She's, doing this weird thing of drinking out of a fountain doesn't it doesn't make a big deal out of it It just does it and it's it, it's
1: quite funny well and also you know henry cavill and Army hammer are in a lot of ways very predictable characters like we know how they're going to react to a situation she's the live wire she's the wild card that we are never quite sure what she's going to do
0: oh yeah i mean from that as i said from that get-go at the beginning you would think she would just be you know carried over the line by henry cavill but she is She's driving the car. She's, doing, she, she's actually the action scene herself.
1: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you could tell the costumer gave her all the really fun outfits, too. For Like, the 60s fashion in this movie is through the roof great. But she gets a lot of the really fun, colorful outfits that are re- very representative of what I recall from, like, 1960s movies that I've, you know, watched in the past.
0: Yeah, that bit where she walks out on the – when she's in the shop and she's been dressed for the second time. And she's in that sort of white miniskirt thing with the shoes. That's a, that's a great outfit. I like mean, to some, be fair, the whole, as you said before, the whole film is, is dressed really well. And yeah. the, in terms of the era, how they've shot it, it all fits, it doesn't look out of place. Um, I think it's a stunning-looking film, I would have said.
1: It is. It's a great-looking movie, um, with some exceptions I'll get to, in, you know, in terms of more of the action stuff. But, um, yeah, like, what I also liked about Vikander was the pairing of her and Army Hammer, where they have to play this married couple. And the tension they have, like, the movie pulls back on that tension like i kind of liked how restrained the movie is like they are goofy they have the wrestling match and all that sort of stuff but it's not it doesn't feel like the ultra conventional pairing we would get here
0: yeah you almost feel like it would have been easy
1: just to go um cavil and vikanda right yeah like that's i think what a lot of movies would have done because the army hammer romance with her is very like awkward and kind of you know, it, it, let's just say it does not uh, reach fruition by the end. You know, it's um, it, it doesn't quite all come together, and so I kind of like that. Like I like the messiness of it. It made more fun. It's slightly more real, I would say as well. That's yeah. You look at Henry
0: Cavill, uh, and he's when he's with the the desk clerk, or she's she's credited as desk clerk. All he has to do is kind of make a little comment, and then she spends the night in his room. Very classic James Bond getting the girl star. Whereas these two are kind of like real people flirting with each other for the whole film. And, and, you know, most relationships don't come together in, you know, 48 hours. And,
1: you know, you don't, by the end, you don't even have a kiss. Really. And there is a fun contrast with the Army Hammer character. He is kind of a cartoon. I mean, he's a guy who's constantly on the edge of, like, losing his temper, why, you know, his hand's always shaking. But then you pair that with the awkward romance. It helps humanize a character that could have been very one-note.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, actually, out of the two, not to lean back on the two male leads again, but I would say Army Hammer's character, it feels more fleshed out by the end.
1: Yeah, I think the movie does more, honestly. I don't think
0: think Henry Cavill gets particularly like a redemption arc or anything.
1: No, I think, honestly, Army Hammer gets more fleshed out as a character over the course of the movie than Henry Cavill, who's so aloof a character that I almost don't think you can flesh him out. I don't think you want to, really.
0: It's got a hand Solo effect too much. You don't want to take the onion, the layers off of the onion. Or the grape. Or the grape. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anyone peel a grape before in cinema
1: history, so that was a first for me. You have now. Well, there you go. <laughs> I thought, you know, I want to jump over to um, Elizabeth DeBecky, who mm-hmm. may have been my MVP for this movie. I thought she was a fantastic villain. Like, so much fun. Yeah,
0: she's... I don't want to say chewing up the scenery but she's definitely leaning into the character a little bit you know like when she knocks out henry cavill and just sort of lays on top of him on the couch and sort of watches him fall
1: asleep it's she's got a little bit of a menace behind her as well and i like that you know she has a husband in this um played by luca calvani who's another villain i love that he's just kind of an afterthought she's the one running the show and her back and forth with henry cavill Maybe ties a little more into the Bond element where it is that kind of movie-land seduction kind of stuff that happens mm-hmm. in spy movies. But it's played like it has a really nice mean edge because of her character. And just scenes where she's bantering back and forth with Henry Cavill are great. And I love how imposing she is because Elizabeth Debicki, is, I don't, she's very tall. She's got to be like six feet, six foot one or something. But they put her in high heels so she like towers over the scene yeah she really grabs the
0: the sort of screen time that she has in the film and she you know she's not really introduced until 30 40 minutes into the film i would say yeah you see a little picture of her in the in the dossier and that's
1: about it but for the rest of the film she is someone you look forward to seeing even though she is the villain the second she walks in you recognize this as a very important character and someone who kind of transfixes the screen which is a tough thing to do. And Elizabeth Debicki was not a big star at this point. You know, she hadn't done Guardians of the Galaxy and Widows. And she's intended, of course, the Christopher Nolan film. This was very much one of her big coming out party kind of movies. And mm. it definitely announced someone who had a lot of um, uh, presence when they walked into a room.
0: I think that's a little bit of kudos again to Guy Ritchie for how he wrote the characters. Because again, he's playing with the the tropes. So we have, obviously, with the two male leads and Alicia uh, Vikander's character all being slightly off what you would expect their characters to be. Debicki's character is, is the major villain of the film. But she, she, she's not mustache twirling at all.
1: Right. I would say she, she's quite cool about the whole thing. And very, very smart and competent. You know, you have that mm. scene where Henry Cavill shows up and she's like, oh, pour yourself a drink, I'm busy. And then he goes, oh, you've put something in this. You've drugged me. Yeah, How do you know I would dr- take this drink? And she goes, I didn't. I drugged all of them. And I love that. Yeah, that, that shows she actually put a bit of thought into it. It's the same she didn't just put a bullet in the guy like you think would
0: be the smart plan to do. But I suppose you still need some of those old spy movie tropes to hang around.
1: Yeah. I thought her uh, big uh, final you know, death scene was amazing too with them firing the missile but not telling her until, you know, uh, oh, by the way, we fired that missile 30 seconds ago. And then it lands and just boom. It's such a big, like, gotcha kind of final moment.
0: How's that for entertainment?
1: Oh, that's a great line, too. It is a
0: good line. Um, i trying to think of any other characters I want to make a special mention of. Obviously, we get a little appearance from Hugh Grant mm-hmm. as the, the Waverly character, yeah. uh, which is sort of the, the man in charge of the men from UNCLE, or the people from UNCLE, group of UNCLE. Um, but one, one cool little uh, connection to one of our previous films is Waverly in the original pilot was played by the actor who plays the professor in North by Northwest. I can't remember the name off, off the top of my head. Leo G. Carroll. That's the one.
1: Which I thought that's a little cool connection there to the past uh, of our past podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant, to me in this movie, felt like someone that was being set up to do a lot more in a sequel so he's only in this movie a little bit. A um, little bit of a trivia note, though. If you see the movie The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's recent um, crime film, which is really fun, actually, there's a scene where Hugh Grant's character is sitting in a Hollywood meeting room, and there's a poster for the man from Uncle in the background. So a little bit of a Easter egg for people that want to, you know, see some of Ritchie's other work. I didn't know that, actually. But I'm glad you mentioned the
0: the somewhat of a setup for a sequel. Say that fast five times. Hmm. But, um. I moaned last week that the born identity felt like it was setting up too much. And I, I don't like that feeling. So I felt like I should touch on it again. This one does have that feeling at the end, but I don't think it's as heavy handed. And I, I believe this one ties up a lot better at the end. It, it has existed as one film. and It probably will go on as one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately I, I yeah. would have loved, I would have loved more. I think, I think, you know, this is a very imperfect first film, but I think you could have improved on it in a sequel. And maybe I'll say into some of the things that bothered me. Like I thought this movie had a very odd contrast, almost a annoying contrast sometimes in the 60s style of the movie and the performances, which we've talked about. And I really did enjoy with like a lot of the action stuff, which is shot in a way that's like, it almost feels like Michael Mann style, very HD digital look kind of action that I just thought was very a jarring combination. Like, Some of it's fine. Like there's enough character carried through like the opening scene where it's Army Hammer facing off against Henry Cavill's character. But when you had like that car chase by the end, which was edited to ribbons, you're losing the energy that was built up between the characters in these action sequences that aren't that impressive.
0: Yeah, you've you've kind of tapped into that a little bit for me. I, I couldn't think of how I really wanted to process my thoughts on the action sequences and how it was put together. But Especially, like, there was bits of, I would guess, CGI work. It felt like I was watching,
1: like, Sin City or something like that. There's some really bad CG in this movie. A lot of it is, like, backgrounds and things like that. But, yeah, you are Mm. right. In the action scenes, some of the CG is really clunky. And, I mean, this is a $75 million movie, as we've said. Um, So CG, I think they were probably, you know, had limited time and limited resources. But a lot of it is glaring.
0: Yeah, there's there's a, a little bit that sticks out in my head from my my couple of watches of this film when Henry Cavill drives the van on top of the boat. Oh yeah, and it almost was like someone has like you know cut and pasted the image of the van and just sort of dragged it onto the boat. Like it, it looks really unnatural.
1: I rewound that because I was like, did I just see what I thought I saw? And mm. it's very awkward. It looks almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> Like, it just stops
0: in midair and it goes, oh, and then drops down, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, like, and the opening chase, where you have, so it starts off with Army Hammer chasing after Henry Cavill, and he's making his escape with a leash of a candor, but they're jumping in a car, and there's scenes where, like, the cars are driving, you know, opposite each other, and it looks very fake. It looks like a cartoon, and then you're cutting to the actors inside, which feels completely real, back to very obvious CG cars.
0: Yeah, that definitely stood out. I mean, I'm glad to to hear that the budget wasn't that big on the film. It makes me not judge it as harshly now you've told me how much they spent on it because it feels like that's how much they spent on it.
1: Yeah, what did you think of the car chase at the end with Henry Cavill in the off-roader? It reminded me of a certain uh, Star Trek film I don't really want to
0: mention. um, (laughs) It just felt like it didn't connect. Like it was just chopped together and these like quick zoom out cuts from each shot. It, I don't know. It just felt like I was watching a video game cutscene.
1: Yeah, like I was writing in my notes. There are sequences in this movie. Um, like say the torture sequence when Henry Cavill's being tortured and, um, you know, gets out of the situation with Army Hammer and then the guy that's torturing them gets burned horribly to death. It's an extended sequence that's super fun. And I was writing in my notes like. Guy Ritchie's really making some interesting sequences throughout this movie. There's some really fun character-driven sequences. But when it comes to the action, I feel like he couldn't assemble a sequence to save his life. Like that car chase in the off-road one, it feels like it's like all these disconnected cuts just pasted together with a lot of digital overview mapping zooms that it's like basically just to show the geography, but it also looks incredibly phony and like something that was done to kind of connect everything together, kind of paste it together.
0: Yeah, so you've got these little cuts of the, the, the vehicle driving and then it's basically just CG in between, which I think it would take a lot of viewers away from that moment. You wouldn't feel as, as connected to the film at that point. I certainly, all those times that we've mentioned, I always felt like I was being
1: pulled out of the film. Yeah, I did too. Like to me, the action pulled me out of the movie more often because if it was you know, CG kind of stuff like this or some of it had an ultra-realistic HD Michael Mann look to it, which I'm also like, this doesn't fit this movie. Like, This is a fun, soapy, 60s spy movie. Like, Why aren't we doing some slicker, fun action versus something that's trying to look like the Miami Vice remake? You have to think it must have just
0: been a budgetary constraint. Maybe, maybe. I, I it's mean, it's a shame because I thought like that's this is the main bit that lets the film down for me is is those sequences, as you say.
1: Yeah, because you know, we were talking, you know, referenced earlier Henry Cavill in Mission Impossible Fallout, but when you look at the Mission Impossible films, they're very good at keeping a consistent tone between their character driven stuff and their action sequences. Whereas this movie, really like the two are butting heads, it felt like a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, there was definitely a styles clash between those two types of sequences, which. I think just, I don't want to say ruin the film because I enjoyed the film, but
1: it definitely brought it down a few pegs for me. Yeah, and it, it also cuts the characters often out of those scenes because it takes this rapid cutting approach to some of the action. You lose the character. And I think the character is what's making the movie so enjoyable. Like I think there's ways, well, you know, you look at that intro between Army Hammer and Henry Cavill a lot of it is character based. It's Henry Cavill in a car talking to Alicia Vikander, you know, where is he? Okay, when you hear a pistol sound, go. Like it's all based on how the characters are interacting, but you lose that a lot of the time in the action. I mean, I referenced earlier the montage where they invade the enemy's base and it's all done just through split screens and quick cuts. And I mean, I was okay because it spared me an extended like choppy um, invasion of the bad guy's lair action sequence. But at Mm. the same time, you lose all the character stuff. You're just seeing Army Hammer and Henry Cavill as action heroes.
0: When I saw that scene, I thought maybe they're doing some sort of reference to the the opening title sequence of the original TV show, something Mm -hmm. like that, with the sort of cut together scenes. Yeah. And so I I allowed it as that. And then when I went to go watch the original episode, none of that actually happens. And the score isn't the same either. So it was just a bit of lazy cinematography, I'd say.
1: Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to just touch on, though, is I thought the movie made good use of uh, a lot of the background to do with the Cold War. I liked all the little history lesson at the start about East and West Germany and how this ties into all the characters and all the, the obviously, this movie deals as well with maybe escaped uh, Nazi figures that have disappeared post-World War II. You know, you have this character, um, Uncle Rudy, who, you know, Alicia Vikander goes to meet with and is a total sadist and is very clearly modeled on Joseph Mengele, the Dr. Death figure, the Angel of Death character from the Death mm-hmm. Camps. He shows like a book at one point going through his childhood and then the experiments he was doing in World War II. And I liked the way the movie took these real world events and kind of made them into this pulpy story. Like as me, it's not necessarily the most sensitive of approaches, but I thought it added something. It gave a, the movie a bit of a distinct flavor.
0: And I think it added a little bit of grounding for the film in the year it's
1: supposed to be set because these these were real fears that people had at that time yeah for sure i mean this was definitely something that was going on in the yeah the atmosphere of the 60s um especially in a lot of the espionage movies of that time and i think they were smart to double down well maybe they weren't because this movie wasn't a big hit but i think they were creatively smart to double down on this being a very 60s period piece because it did separate it from things like Bourne and James Bond, and I think that was intentional. I mean, even this movie, there's a lot of gadget stuff and the gadgets are very 60s and malfunctioning, but I thought just like all the kind of the 60s trappings politically as well as aesthetically really did work very well for the movie. It's such a shame
0: because this movie feels like it's got so many good things going for it, but there's these glaring problems with things like the action sequences. And I wonder if if they had been tweaked. It it might have just been its saving grace at the
1: box office. Because I think otherwise, it's a a pretty solid film. It's a fun movie. And I did have to question how well uh, this movie is really plotted out. Because there was points where I was like, this is becoming incomprehensible. But Guy Ritchie does that thing he loves to do, where suddenly a character references and they go back to flashbacks that fill in something that uh, doesn't make sense. And they do these reveals a lot, especially near the end. There's like three or four of them in succession. And I was like, are you cheating here, Guy Ritchie? I have real questions about this. (laughs) It does have that um, sort of last
0: act almost where they're just expositing things on you to try and bring you up to speed on the plot line. Like when uh, Elisa Bikanda's character kind of betrays them almost and has to give the whole what she did thing. Whereas you could kind of piece that together yourself with maybe a little bit more information. You didn't need it all to be spelled out for you on the screen.
1: I mean, it's definitely Guy Ritchie going to his bag of tricks. He did this a lot in the Sherlock Holmes movies where whenever Sherlock would deduct something, you'd get these flashbacks to everything that happened previously. But it's a lot of uh, cheating, I think, on his part, just through editing, which, you know what, obviously he doesn't want to, um, you know, write all this stuff. I guess it really convey it in a straightforward manner. I think because this movie is so style over substance, it actually works pretty well. I think in Sherlock Holmes, it feels a little more like cheating.
0: I, I can't say it threw me out as much as some of the other problems I have with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had kind of guessed what had happened in that sequence, for instance. Uh, I don't think I needed the whole montage of going back, though. And
1: yeah, that,
0: that did make me kind of
1: uh, you know, barb a little bit. I was like, ooh, did we need that? I wonder, though, if this movie is too invested in the villain plot and how labyrinthine it is, because the movie is so focused on just being cool and having fun that whenever it has to explain this overcomplicated plot, you kind of go like, "Like, I don't really care. Like, I just want to hang out with these characters. It's the hangout vibe that makes this movie so much fun. But the movie seems fairly determined that this also has to be a very clever, twisty spy story. Which, I mean, I get it for the genre, you know, spy story should be twisty, but... I wonder if it was necessary and I wonder if it maybe puts up a little bit of a wall for say an audience that might just show up and have fun with the movie.
0: I mean, you can be twisty without having to confuse people.
1: That's very true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think this is that duality you mentioned again about the sort of the one side of the film that's got the hangout campy quippy factor. And then there's this sort of serious plot that's also going on at the same time, which is basically kind of like our two leads again, and again, that duality of the two of them. But I, I think if they just stuck to one of those two things, maybe it would have fared a fair bit better. I mean, the TV show, I mean, I, I haven't seen all of them. Obviously, we only watched the first one, but I think it walks the line a lot better than the film does.
1: I got to say, i you know, and we'll say now, it, maybe just talk a little bit about the TV pilot because we watched this as research, as we said, but I really enjoyed this pilot a lot. <laughs> like I was kind of stunned at how enjoyable i found the show i thought it might be a very creaky you know 1964 attempt at doing a james bond style adventure on the small screen but i thought it was a lot of fun
0: yeah i i had set it up to have it on i don't want to say in the background because i was going to pay attention but i was going to have it on whilst i was eating my lunch right um so you know half of my focus is eating my sandwich or whatever it was
1: you were like henry cavill you had classical music on you're eating uh Gourmet sandwiches.
0: Exactly. I was I was sipping my wine. I was really, really enjoying my meal. But it, it
1: pulled me in. Yeah. Like, uh, I gotta say, I, I might actually go back and watch a bit more. I thought Robert Vaughn was so charming in this show. <laughs> but then not not too much in your face as well. No, I love that he actually had like a very clear moral line. Like, that's something James Bond doesn't have, you know, or some of the other spies of the era... But, like, Napoleon Solo seems like a really, like, kind of nice guy who has mm-hmm. a very clear, good moral line, but is also just a really awesome spy. And I thought Robert Vaughn pulled off the cool factor really well.
0: The female character in the in the pilot is, is married and has kids. So there's, like, an initial flirting factor, and it kind of flows throughout the episode. They kind of banter a little bit. But as soon as he as, as, you knows she's married, he's not really going in for the kill anymore. He even buys presents for him, for the husband and, the and her family.
1: Yeah, and yeah. then at the end, he's like watching them reunite out the window with kind of a pleasant smile on his face. I was like, I love this guy. I want to hang out yeah. with him for more episodes.
0: He seems like the kind of guy that would turn up to your birthday party and would have got you a really nice present without you asking him. And a really thoughtful present.
1: Yeah, and you know, there's a whole bit where they go undercover because there's like an industrialist who has an evil scheme, as is so often the case. But just Mm -hmm. all the undercover stuff of them going to like a gala and him dancing with her and everything, I thought it was so much fun and so charming. And I know that when this was shot, they were calling it solo, because at that point, uh, it wasn't going to be, you know, a duo show with Ilya, the Ilya character, um, Mm -hmm. played by David McCallum. But uh, in the episodes going forward, they'd be more of a pairing. But I, you get the sense of this pilot of what the tone of the show is. And I thought the tone was really strong right out of the gate. Even the opening with the bad guys breaking in and shooting it like a gla- at a mirror. And the you see in the mirror Napoleon Solo standing there. I was like, wow, this, this episode has style. And you could tell that there was money thrown at that pilot as well.
0: Yeah, kind of that uh, Man with the Golden Gun
1: intro thing going on with shooting the glass. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say, like when this episode ended... I actually went online on Amazon and I was looking at the pricing of the Man From Uncle box sets. Me too. I've been looking (laughs) it up. I haven't bought one yet, but I'm strongly considering it. It's quite reasonably priced, the whole set. And there's a movie that they did in the, uh, the 70s as well. Yeah. So, I mean, if the Guy Ritchie movie did anything, it convinced me I should probably watch the Man From Uncle TV show, which... You know, Scott and I met through Star Trek fandom, actually, originally. And I'm a huge fan of 1960s Star Trek, the original series. That's my favorite Star Trek. And just watching this show, I was like, oh man, this is giving me all the same energy and creativity I get from Star Trek episodes. I'm loving it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, and there's a couple of connections there as well. I mean, the theme was written by
1: Jerry Goldsmith. Yep. And William Marshall shows up as one of the villains in this, and he played uh, Richard Daystrom in the episode The Ultimate Computer. Yeah, with the M5 computer.
0: Yeah. So um, There was one other uh, small cameo in this pilot episode I wanted to make mention. I wanted to know if you spotted it in him at all. Um, oh, it sounds like you didn't. I'm not sure. Who, who was uh, it? Let, let me give you a hint. Uh, he is he's known for his teeth.
1: Known for his, oh, Richard Keel. There we go.
0: Yeah, so in the episode, he's one of the henchmen that's trying to stop Solo from escaping. Right. And he's on the screen for all of five seconds. Yeah. And he does go on to appear again later in in the run of the show. But um, I remember seeing him on the screen and shouting, that's Jaws, that's Jaws. And then I had to rewind it just to prove it to my better half. Right. What what did she think of it? She actually quite enjoyed it too. I think I might have a, (laughs) a, a, a friend watching it with me on this
1: one. Unlike the rest of these films so far. Yeah, like I can't really induct um, The Man From Uncle pilot into the knock list, but I would if I could. <laughs> yeah, that, that would probably get a thumbs up from me too. Hmm. We'll see how the film
0: does when we inevitably get around to watching that.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So...
0: Which I, I think probably leads us on to the question. Mm. Can The Man From Uncle 2015 doesn't make the knock list.
1: I don't think so. I think it's a charming movie. It's fun. Um, I can totally see people enjoying watching this movie, just thinking it's, you know, kind of a, a lark, something that they watch, laugh at the actors who are having fun, um, you know, get maybe a little bit of a kick out of the action, but probably forget the movie after it's over. I can say I saw this movie in theaters, and when I rewatched it, to you know, uh, last night, I barely remembered next to anything that happened in it other than some key sequences. So. I think it's a little bit too trivial for the knock list but I do think it's a fun movie.
0: Yeah, I think you you nailed it again on that one was the it's it's a popcorn film.
1: Yeah. It, you can go
0: in it's a, a enjoyable hour and 55 minutes. You you won't really be disappointed with the film, but it is not one of the best spy films of all time. So, uh from my side it's also a no. I would actually probably watch this again if I had nothing else going before And it popped up on my Netflix queue. But There's um, many, many, many spy films I would choose over this to recommend to people.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I mean, if you're looking for a modern take on 60s James Bond style, it's a lot of fun. But I think we're going to deal with probably better cases of the lighthearted spy movies going forward, like the blockbuster spy movies. Um, But also, honestly, I would feel really bad if I inducted this, but, uh, you know, snubbed the Bourne Identity
0: yeah i feel like if i had to choose between those two
1: i think Bourne would have had a better chance and he didn't get in so yeah and so that's kind of the way i feel but this is not a bad movie like believe me we're gonna have some coming up i'm sure where when it comes to the knock list it's just two, you and i laughing maniacally for seven minutes straight um <laughs> yeah. is it gonna make it oh no Yeah, exactly. That's not the case here. Check it out, but I don't think it's uh, all-timer status. So that's a no from me and a no from you? That's great, yeah. So if you want to follow the knock list, jump on over to Letterboxd, letterboxd.com slash spyhards. We'll actually have the list up there as well as just the overall listing of everything we've covered on the show. So yeah, letterboxd.com slash spyhards. And with that
0: revelation, the dossier on the man from UNCLE is complete and filed as
1: classified. Cam, what are we doing next week? We are going back to 1997 and hanging out with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in the original Men in Black. Ten-year-old me was
0: hyped with this film and I'm actually quite looking forward to going back and watching it again. It's been a long
1: time since I saw it, so I'm looking forward to revisiting it as well. I I picked up a Blu-ray copy. I'm quite scared to see what it looks like in Blu-ray. You never know. You know, I watched Starship Troopers on 4K recently. That movie was made the same year, and I was a little nervous when I bought the 4K because I was like, oh man, like I love this movie, but how is that CG going to hold up on 4K? And it actually looked really good, so you never know.
0: Now, before we wrap up this week, Cam, I do want to throw a bit of love over to our friends at the Mission Impossible podcast. Uh, they have a really great show where they're covering the Mission Impossible TV show, the movies, and they're going through and looking at some other spy films as well. And they also come out on the same day as us. So Tuesdays is basically
1: your spy day uh, where you can get all of your spy podcasts. So suspend yourself from the ceiling from bungee cords. And listen to the Mission Impossible podcast because you will get into the headspace of Ethan Hunt with the excitement that happens on that show. And I'm really looking forward to going through the actual TV show because I have not watched the Mission Impossible TV show. And what better way to get introduced to it than through the Mission Impossible podcast?
0: Yeah, I'm sure we will look back on the Mission Impossible TV show when we go on to cover the franchise ourselves later on down the line. But I'm sure they'll do it a lot better than we will. It wouldn't be hard. (laughs) wouldn't be spy hard
1: that's right
0: (laughs) now don't forget to follow us discreetly of course at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners good luck among the shadows